0: Siberia, Chapter 4 of Memoirs of a Revolutionist by Peter Kropotkin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ehrlin. Seeing that there was nothing more to be done at Chita in the way of reforms, I gladly accepted the offer to visit the Amur that same summer of eighteen sixty three. The immense domain on the left, northern, bank of the Amur and along the Pacific coast as far south as the Bay of Peter the Great, Vladivostok, had been annexed to Russia by Count Muravioff, almost against the will of the St. Petersburg authorities, and certainly without much help from them. When he conceived the bold plan of taking possession of the great river whose southern position and fertile lands had for the last two hundred years always attracted the Siberians, and when, on the eve of the opening of Japan to Europe, he decided to take for Russia a strong position on the Pacific coast, and to join hands with the United States. He had almost everybody against him at St. Petersburg. The Ministry of War, which had no men to dispose of. The Ministry of Finance, which had no money for annexations. And especially the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, always guided by its preoccupation of avoiding diplomatic complications. muravyov had thus to act on his own responsibility— and to rely upon the scanty means which thinly populated eastern siberia could afford for this grand enterprise moreover everything had to be done in a hurry in order to oppose the accomplished fact to the protests of the west european diplomatists which would certainly be raised a nominal occupation would have been of no avail and the idea was to have on the whole length of the great river and of its southern tributary the usuri full 2,500 miles, a chain of self-supporting settlements, and thus to establish a regular communication between Siberia and the Pacific coast. Men were wanted for these settlements, and as the scanty population of East Siberia could not supply them, Moravioff did not recoil before any kind of means of getting men. Released convicts, who, after having served their time, had become serfs to the imperial mines were freed and organized as Transbaikalian Cossacks, part of whom were settled along the Amur and the Yusuri, forming two new Cossack communities. Then Muravyev obtained the release of a thousand hard-labour convicts, mostly robbers and murderers, who had to be settled as free men on the lower Amur. He came himself to see them off, and as they were going to leave, addressed them on the beach. "'Go, my children, be free there, cultivate the land, make it Russian soil.' "'start a new life,' and so on. "'The Russian peasant women nearly always follow, of their own free will, "'their husbands, if the latter happened to be sent to hard labour to Siberia, "'and many of the would-be colonists had their families with them. "'But those who had none ventured to remark to Muravyev, "'What is agriculture without a wife? We ought to be married.' "'Whereupon muravyov ordered to release all the hard-labour convict women of the place, "'about a hundred and offered them the choice of the man each of them would like to marry and to follow. However, there was little time to lose. The high water in the river was rapidly going down, the rafts had to start, and Muravyov, asking the people to stand in pairs on the beach, blessed them, saying, "'I marry you, children. Be kind to each other. You men don't ill-treat your wives, and be happy.'" I saw these settlers some six years after that scene. Their villages were poor, the land they had been settled on having had to be cleared from under virgin forests. But, all taken, their settlements were not a failure, and the Muravyov marriages were not less happy than marriages are on the average. That excellent, intelligent man, Innocentus, Bishop of the Amur, recognized later on these marriages, as well as the children which were born, as quite legal, and had them inscribed on the church registers. Muravyov was less successful, though with another batch of men that he added to the population of East Siberia. In his penury of men he had accepted a couple of thousand soldiers from the punishment battalions. They were incorporated as adopted sons in the families of the Cossacks, or were settled in joint households in the villages. But ten or twenty years of barrack life under the horrid discipline of Nicholas I's time surely was not a preparation for an agricultural life. The sons deserted their adopted fathers, and constituted the floating population of the towns, living from hand to mouth on occasional jobs, spending chiefly in drink what they earned, and then again living as birds in the sky in the expectation of another job turning up. The motley crowd of Transbaikalian Cossacks, of ex-convicts and sons, who were settled in a hurry and often in a haphazard way along the banks of the Amur certainly did not attain prosperity, especially in the lower parts of the river and on the Usuri, where every square yard had often to be won upon a virgin subtropical forest, and deluges of rain brought by the monsoons in July, inundations on a gigantic scale, millions of migrating birds, and the like, continually destroyed the crops, finally bringing whole populations to sheer despair and apathy considerable supplies of salt flour cured meat and so on had thus to be shipped every year to support both the regular troops and the settlements on the lower amur and for that purpose some hundred and fifty barges used to be built and loaded at Chita, and floated with the early spring floods down the ingoda the shilka and the amur the whole flotilla was divided into detachments of from twenty to thirty barges which were placed under the orders of a number of Cossack and Civil Service officers. Most of them did not know much about navigation, but they could be trusted, at least, not to steal the provisions and then report them as lost. I was nominated assistant to the chief of all that flotilla, let me name him, Major Marovsky. My first experiences in my new capacity of navigator were all but successful. It so happened that I had to proceed with a few barges as rapidly as possible to a certain point on the Amur, and there to hand over my vessels. For that purpose I had to hire men exactly from among those sons whom I have already mentioned. None of them had ever had any experience in river navigation, nor had I. On the morning of our start my crew had to be collected from the public-houses of the place— most of them being so drunk at that early hour that they had to be bathed in the river to bring them back to their senses. When we were afloat, I had to teach them everything that had to be done. Still, things went pretty well during the day. The barges, carried along by a swift current, floated down the river, and my crew, inexperienced though they were, had no interest in throwing their vessels upon the shore. That would have required special exertion but when dusk came and our huge, heavily laden, fifty-ton barges had to be brought to the shore and fastened to it for the night, one of the barges, which was far ahead of the one upon which I was, was stopped only when it was fast upon a rock, at the foot of a tremendously high and accessible cliff. There it stood immovable, while the level of the river, temporarily swollen by rains, was rapidly going down. My ten men evidently could not move it, "'so I rode down to the next village "'to ask assistance from the Cossacks, "'and at the same time dispatched a messenger to a friend, "'a Cossack officer who stayed some twenty miles away "'and who had experience in such things. "'The morning came. "'A hundred Cossacks, men and women, had come to my aid, "'but there was no means whatever to connect the barge with the shore "'in order to unload it. "'So deep was the water under the cliff. "'And as soon as we attempted to push it off the rock,' its bottom was broken in, and water freely entered it, sweeping away the flour and the salt of the cargo. To my great horror, I perceived lots of small fish entering through the hole and freely swimming about in the barge, and I stood there helpless, not knowing what to do next. There is a very simple and effective remedy for such emergencies. A sack of flour is thrust into the hole, and it soon takes its shape, while the outer crust of paste which is formed in the sack prevents water from penetrating through the flour. But none of us knew anything about it. Happily enough, a few minutes later a barge was signalled coming down the river towards us. The appearance of the swan who carried Lohengrin was not greeted with more enthusiasm by the despairing Elsa than that clumsy vessel was greeted by me. The haze which covered the beautiful Shilka at that early hour in the morning added even more to the poetry of the vision. It was my friend the Cossack officer, who had realized by my description that no human force could drag my barge off the rock, that it was lost, and taking an empty barge which by chance was at hand, came with it to place upon it the cargo of my doomed craft. Now the hole was filled up, the water was pumped out, and the cargo was transferred to the new barge, which was fastened alongside mine, and next morning I could continue my journey. This little experience was of great profit to me, and I soon reached my destination on the Amur, without further adventures worth mentioning. Every night we found out some stretch of steep but relatively low shore where to stop with the barges for the night, and our fires were soon lighted on the bank of the swift and clear river, amidst most beautiful mountain scenery in daytime one could hardly imagine a more pleasant journey than on board a barge which leisurely floats down without any of the noises of a steamer one or two strokes being occasionally given with its immense stern rudder to keep it in the main current for the lover of nature the lower part of the shilka and the upper part of the amur where one sees a most beautiful wide and swift river flowing amidst mountains, rising in steep wooded cliffs a couple of thousand feet above the water, offers one of the most delightful scenes in the world. But on that very account, communication along the shore, on horseback, along a narrow trail, is extremely difficult. I learned this that same autumn at my own expense. In East Siberia, the seven last stations along the Shilka about one hundred and twenty miles, were known as the Seven Mortal Sins. This stretch of the Trans-Siberian Railway, if it is ever built, will cost unimaginable sums of money, much more than the stretch of the Canadian Pacific Line in the Rocky Mountains, in the canyon of the Fraser River, has cost. After I had delivered my barges, I made about a thousand miles down the Amur in one of the post-boats which are used on the river, The boat is covered with a light shed in its back part, and has on its stem a box filled with earth, upon which a fire is kept to cook the food. My crew consisted of three men. We had to make haste, and therefore used to row in turns all day long, while at night the boat was left to float with the current, and I kept the watch for three or four hours to maintain the boat in the midst of the river, and to prevent it from being dragged into some side branch. These watches— The full moon shining above, and the dark hills reflected in the river, were beautiful beyond description. My rowers were taken from the same sons. They were three tramps, who had the reputation of being incorrigible thieves and robbers, and I carried with me a heavy sack full of banknotes, silver and copper. In Western Europe such a journey on a lonely river would have been considered risky. Not so in East Siberia. I made it without even having so much as an old pistol, and I found my three tramps excellent company. Only as we approached Blagoveshchensk, they became restless. Kanchina, the Chinese brandy, is cheap there, they reasoned with deep sighs. We are sure to get into trouble. It's cheap, and it knocks you over in no time from want of being used to it. I offered to leave the money which was due to them with a friend who would see them off with the first steamer. That would not help us, they replied mournfully. Somebody will offer a glass. It's cheap, and a glass knocks you over, they persisted in saying. They were really perplexed, and when, a few months later, I returned through the town, I learned that one of my sons, as people called them in town, had really got into trouble. When he had sold the last pair of boots to get the poisonous drink, he had made some theft and was locked up. My friend finally obtained his release and shipped him back. Only those who have seen the Amur or know the Mississippi or the Yangtze kiang can imagine what an immense river the Amur becomes after it has joined the Sungari and can realize what tremendous waves roll up its bed if the weather is stormy. When the rainy season, due to the monsoons, comes in July, the Sungari, the Yusuri, and the Amur are swollen by unimaginable quantities of water. Thousands of low islands, usually covered with willow thickets, are inundated or torn away, and the width of the river attains in places two, three, or even five miles. Water rushes into hundreds of branches and lakes, which spread in the lowlands along the main channel. And when a fresh wind blows from an eastern quarter, against the current, tremendous waves, "'higher than those which one sees in the estuary of the St. Lawrence, "'roll up the main channel as well as up its branches. "'Still worse is it when a typhoon blows from the Chinese sea "'and spreads over the Amur region. "'We experienced such a typhoon. "'I was then on board a large decked boat with Major Marovsky, "'whom I had joined at Blagoveshensk. "'He had well provided his boat with sails, "'which permitted us to sail close to the wind.' and when the storm began we managed, nevertheless, to bring our boat on the sheltered side of the river, and to find refuge in some small tributary. There we stayed for two days, while the storm raged with such fury that when I ventured for a hundred yards into the surrounding forest, I had to retreat on account of the number of immense trees which the wind was blowing down around me. We began to feel very uneasy for our barges, It was evident that if they had been afloat this morning, they never would have been able to reach the sheltered side of the river, but must have been driven by the storm to the bank exposed to the full rage of the wind, and there they must have been destroyed. A disaster was almost certain. We sailed out as soon as the main fury of the storm had abated. We knew that we must soon overtake two detachments of barges, but we sailed one day, two days, and there was no trace of them. My friend Marovsky lost both sleep and appetite, and looked as if he had just had a serious illness. He sat whole days on the deck, motionless, murmuring, All is lost, all is lost. The villages are few and rare in this part of the Amur, and nobody could give us any information. A new storm came on, and when we reached at last the village, we learned that no barges had passed by it, and that quantities of wreck had been seen floating down the river during the previous day. It was evident that at least forty barges, which carried a cargo of about two thousand tons, must have perished. It meant a certain famine next spring on the lower Amur if no supplies were brought in time. We were late in the season, navigation would soon be closed, and there was no telegraph yet along the river. We held a council and decided that Marovsky should sail as quickly as possible to the mouth of the Amur. Some purchases of grain might perhaps be made in Japan before the close of the navigation. Meanwhile, I was to go with all possible speed up the river to determine the losses, and do my best to cover the two thousand miles of the Amur and the Shilka, in boats, on horseback, or on board steamer if I met one. THE SOONER I COULD WARN THE Cheetah AUTHORITIES, AND DISPATCH ANY AMOUNT OF PROVISIONS AVAILABLE, THE BETTER IT WOULD BE. PERHAPS PART OF THEM WOULD REACH THIS SAME AUTUMN, THE UPPER AMUR, WHENCE IT WOULD BE EASIER TO SHIP THEM IN THE EARLY SPRING TO THE LOWLANDS. EVEN IF A FEW WEEKS OR ONLY DAYS COULD BE won, IT MIGHT MAKE AN IMMENSE DIFFERENCE IN CASE OF A FAMINE. I BEGAN MY TWO THOUSAND MILES JOURNEY IN A ROWING BOAT, "'changing rowers every twenty miles or so at each village. "'It was very slow progress, "'but there might be no steamer coming up the river for a fortnight, "'and in the meantime I could reach the spots where the barges were wrecked "'and see if any of the provisions had been saved. "'Then, at the mouth of the Yusuri, Kabarovsk, I might find a steamer. "'The boats which I took in the villages were miserable, "'and the weather very stormy. We kept evidently along the shore, but we had to cross some branches of the Amur of great width, and the waves, driven by the high wind, threatened continually to swamp our little craft. One day we had to cross a branch of the Amur nearly half a mile wide. Chopped waves rose like mountains as they rolled up that branch. My rowers, two peasants, were seized with terror. Their faces were white as paper, their blue lips trembled. "'They murmured prayers. "'Only a boy of fifteen, who held the rudder, calmly kept a watchful eye upon the waves. "'He glided between them as they seemed to sink around us for a moment, "'but when he saw them rising to a menacing height in front of us, "'he gave a slight turn to the boat and steadied it across the waves. "'The boat shipped water from each wave, "'and I threw it out with an old ladle, "'noting at times that it accumulated more rapidly than I could get rid of it. There was a moment when the boat shipped two such big waves that, on a sign given to me by one of the trembling rowers, I unfastened the heavy sack full of copper and silver that I carried across my shoulder. For several days in succession we had such crossings. I never forced the men to cross, but they themselves, knowing why I had to hurry, would decide at a given moment that an attempt must be made. There are not seven deaths in one's life, and one cannot be avoided, they would say, and, signing themselves with the cross, would seize the oars and pull over. I soon reached the places where the main destruction of our barges took place. Forty-four barges had been destroyed by the storm. Unloading had been impossible, and very little of the cargo had been saved. Two thousand tons of flour had perished in the waves. With this message I continued my journey. A few days later a steamer slowly creeping up the river overtook me, and when I boarded her the passengers told me that the captain had drunk so much that he was seized with delirium and jumped overboard. He was saved, though, and was now lying ill in his cabin. They asked me to take command of the steamer, and I had to accept it but soon i realized to my great astonishment that everything went on by itself in such an excellent routine way that though i paraded all day on the bridge i had almost nothing to do apart from a few minutes of real responsibility when the steamer had to be brought to the landing-places where we took wood for fuel and saying a few words now and then for encouraging the stokers to start as soon as dawn permitted us faintly to distinguish the outlines of the shores everything went on by itself "'requiring but little interference of mine. "'A pilot, who would have been able to interpret the map, would have managed as well. "'Traveling by steamer and a great deal on horseback, I reached at last Transbaikalia. "'The idea of a famine that might break out next spring on the lower Amur oppressed me all the time. "'I found that the small steamer, on board of which I was, did not progress up the swift Silka rapidly enough.' and in order to gain some twenty hours, or even less, I abandoned it and rode with a Cossack a couple of hundred miles up the Argun, along one of the wildest mountain tracks in Siberia, stopping to light our campfire only after midnight would have overtaken us in the woods. Even the ten or twenty hours that I might gain by this exertion had not to be despised, because every day brought us nearer to the close of navigation. At nights, ice was already forming on the river." At last I met the governor of Transbaikalia and my friend, Colonel Pedashenko, on the Shilka, at the convict settlement of Kara, and the latter took in hand the care of shipping immediately all available provisions. As to me, I left immediately to report all about the matter at Irkutsk. People at Irkutsk wondered that I had managed to make this long journey so rapidly, but I was quite worn out. However, youth quickly recovers its strength and I recovered mine by sleeping for some time such a number of hours every day that I should be ashamed to say how many. Have you taken some rest? the Governor-General asked me a week or so after my arrival. Could you start to-morrow for St. Petersburg, as a courier, to report there yourself upon the loss of the barges? It meant to cover in twenty days, not one day more, another distance of three thousand two hundred miles between Irkutsk, and Nijny Novgorod, where I could take the railway to St. Petersburg, to gallop day and night in post-carts, which had to be changed at every station, because no carriage would stand such a journey full speed over the ruts of the road frozen at the end of autumn. But to see my brother Alexander was too great an attraction for me not to accept the offer, and I started the next night. When I reached the lowlands of West Siberia and the Urals, The journey really became a torture. There were days when the wheels of the carts would be broken over the frozen ruts at every successive station. The rivers were freezing, and I had to cross the Ob in a boat amidst the floating ice, which menaced at every moment to crush our small craft. When I reached the Tom River, on which the ice had only stopped floating during the preceding night, the peasants refused for some time to take me over, asking me to give them a receipt. "'What sort of receipt do you want?' "'Well, you write on a paper. "'I, undersigned, hereby testify that I was drowned by the will of God "'and by no fault of the peasants. "'And you give us that paper. "'With pleasure, on the other shore.' "'At last they took me over. "'A boy, a brave bright boy whom I had selected in the crowd, "'opened the procession, testing the strength of the ice with a pole. "'I followed him, carrying my despatch-box on my shoulders.' and we two were attached to long reins which five peasants held, following us at a distance, one of them carrying a bundle of straw to be thrown on the ice if it should not seem strong enough. At last I reached Moscow, where my brother met me at the station, and we proceeded at once to St. Petersburg. Youth is a grand thing. After such a journey, which lasted twenty-four days and nights, when I came early in the morning to St. Petersburg, I went the same day to deliver my despatches, and did not fail also to call upon an aunt, or rather upon a cousin, who resided at St. Petersburg. She was radiant. "'We have a dancing party tonight. Will you come?' she said. "'Of course I would. And not only come, but dance until an early hour of the morning.' When I came to St. Petersburg and saw the authorities, I understood why I had been sent to make the report. Nobody would believe the possibility of such a destruction of the barges. Have you been on the spot? Did you see the destruction with your own eyes? Are you perfectly sure that they have not simply stolen the provisions and shown you the wreck of some barges? Such were the questions I had to answer. The high functionaries who stood at the head of Siberian affairs at St. Petersburg were simply charming in their innocent ignorance of Siberia. Mais, mon cher, one of them said to me, he always spoke French, how is it possible that forty barges should be destroyed on the Nieva without anyone rushing to help save them? The Nieva, I exclaimed, put three, four Nievas side by side and you will have the lower Amur." Is it really as big as that? And two minutes later he was chatting, in excellent French, about all sorts of things. When did you last see Swatch, the painter, "'Is not his John the Terrible a wonderful picture? "'Do you know for what reason Kukel was going to be arrested? "'Do you know that Tchernyshevsky is arrested? "'He is now in the fortress.' "'What for? What has he done?' I asked. "'Nothing particular, nothing. "'But, Moucher, you know, state considerations. "'Such a clever man, awfully clever, "'and such an influence he has upon the youth. "'You understand that a government cannot tolerate that. "'That's impossible.' "'Intolérable, mon cher, dans un état bien ordonné. "'Count Ignatieff made no such questions. "'He knew the Amour very well, and he knew St. Petersburg, too. "'Amidst all sorts of jokes and witty remarks about Siberia, "'which he made with an astounding vivacity, he dropped to me, "'It is a very lucky thing that you were there on the spot and saw the wrecks, "'and they were clever to send you with the report. "'Well done.' At first, nobody wanted to believe about the barges. Some new swindling, it was thought. But now people say that you were well known as a page. And you have only been a few months in Siberia, so you would not shelter the people there if it were swindling. They trust in you. The Minister of War, Dmitri Milutin, was the only man in the high administration of St. Petersburg who took the matter seriously. He asked me many questions, all to the point. "'He mastered the subject at once, and all our conversation was in short sentences, without hurry, but without any waste of words. "'The coast settlements to be supplied from the sea, you mean? "'The reminder only from Cheetah? "'Quite right. "'But if a storm happens next year, will there be the same destruction once more?' "'No, if there are two small tugs, to convoy the barges. "'Will it do?' "'Yes, with one tug the loss would not have been half so heavy.' "'Very probably. Write to me, please. State all you have said, quite plainly. No formalities.'" End of Siberia, Chapter 4